0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everyone, and
1: welcome back to Election 2024, the Post Political Roundtable. I'm Sean Sullivan, campaign editor here at The Washington Post. And today we continue our conversation about the 2024 election with some of the top journalists in our newsroom. First up today, Dan Balls, chief correspondent here at The Post. Dan. Welcome to election 2024. I think this is your first time on the program. So a great honor to have you uh, have you joining us.
0: It is my first time. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me.
1: Eager to jump into a bunch of things. All right, Dan, I wanted to start with uh, the big news, both on the legal front and politically yesterday, which is this uh, unanimous appeals court ruling that Donald Trump, the former president, uh, does not have immunity from prosecution uh, for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I wonder what you think sort of the political implications in this race are not just of this ruling, but of this entire legal cloud that hangs over Donald Trump and seems like it will continue to, uh, at least for the rest of this year and perhaps beyond.
0: Yeah, it sure does, Sean. I mean, I think I think that we're in in a campaign in which half the campaign's going to be done through legal circles and courtrooms and court rulings and um, un- unlike anything we've ever gone through. and I, and I think for that reason we are. You know, to use the cliche, we are in uncharted waters on this. Um, the, the ruling yesterday, I don't think surprised many people. I think most legal scholars thought that the, that the appeals court panel would come down there. But uh, one of the interesting things is the interpretation of it is the degree to which it seemed like a pretty airtight ruling, um, which does not leave much hope for former President Trump. Uh, on appeal. Obviously, he does have the ability the, to appeal, and he will. Um, I, I think there are a couple of implications of this. One is the question of um, assuming it ends up at the Supreme Court, does the Supreme Court um, take it and and deliver its own ruling or simply accept what the, what the appellate court has done? Um, that, of course, will affect the timetable, and it also might affect the, the narrowness or the broadness of uh, the ruling that ultimately comes down. Um, but this also has a, an important impact on the timing of the cases that Donald Trump is facing. Uh, we know that the that the one trial, the Jack Smith trial, having to do with the 2020 election uh, was scheduled originally to begin in early March, and that's been delayed by the judge, pending all of what's going on with the, with the uh, issues having to do with, uh, presidential immunity and uh, question of whether he is allowed on the ballot. So, the longer that that court case is pushed back, the more it bumps up into the potential for something in the middle of the conventions or closer to the election. Uh, all of which raises a lot of questions about what voters will know or not know in terms of what a jury might think of the charges against the president. So, um, this is something that we're you know we're watching roll over a, a long period of time. Um, We know in the short term uh, that the indictments helped Donald Trump within the Republican Party. It it put him in a commanding position uh, to become the nominee, which he's on the track to do. Um, But what we don't know is what the implications might be if he is actually convicted in one of these cases and how that might affect the broader general election electorate.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about, Dan. I mean, it seems clear, as you point out, that in this primary, this has helped him, this has rallied a base to his corner. But how does it sort of, well, I, know, I know we don't know how it's going to play in the general election, but how are Democrats or, uh, starting to think about this? Is this an argument where they feel like they can use against him? And we hear them talk about Trump as a threat to democracy, as a threat to abortion rights. Um, but does the legal issue I- itself sort of work? As a political tactic in the minds of Democrats, sort of looking at how they're going to run against
0: him. Well, I think for you know for President Biden, it's it, it's kind of the unsaid argument. Um, it's tricky for president the for the president to get in the middle of this since it's his Justice Department uh, that has brought these charges, and and the degree to which he wades in in any significant way or political way, uh, the more potential there is for some backlash uh, and and added motivation to uh, the Trump base. So. That's, I think that's partly what they have to weigh. Um, the polling on this has been interesting, though not definitive, but it does suggest that if there is a conviction, it would have an impact on how some people perceive the choice between uh, the current president and the former president. There was an NBC poll out recently that, um, that showed a, a movement in the polls uh from a trump advantage to you know to a slight biden advantage again everything is kind of within the margin of error but uh but it does suggest that uh a conviction by a jury uh would register on some voters in ways that the indictments have not yet uh registered so um a- again you know we're we're you know we're kind of trying to read tea leaves at this point and polling is um, interesting but certainly not definitive but uh but as an argument i think that the president is much more comfortable with making the argument the more the more general and broader argument about uh former president trump as a threat to democracy and de- democratic institutions and as somebody who uh who leans toward you know being an authoritarian president and who admires authoritarian leaders around the world uh that's a that's a that's an argument that the president has made and certainly They've indicated that they will continue to make that a central part of the argument, uh, along with some of the other issues that have um, motivated Democratic voters, uh, the principal one among those being uh, abortion.
1: Interesting. Okay, Dan, we're talking about the general election, but there is still a Republican primary happening. <laughs> Donald Trump is in a commanding position, but he does still have one opponent in Nikki Haley. And there was some news last night in the Republican primary, this very unusual situation in Nevada where Haley participated in a primary, but it didn't actually count for anything. And she was the only major candidate, but then she lost that primary uh, to none of these candidates, which is a unique option that Nevada voters have on their ballot. So a lot of really insidery, uh, interesting political <laughs> stuff there that folks like us get excited about. But what, what does this mean in the big picture here for Nikki Haley? I mean, clearly an embarrassment for her, but what does this sort of say about the state of her campaign and its ability to plow through uh, at this point in the race?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was an embarrassment, certainly. But in the great scheme of things, I don't think it means a lot uh, for Nikki Haley's campaign. So much now, in fact, everything depends on her ability to do well. Uh, or not in South Carolina. Um, honestly, the the Nevada caucuses within the Republican nomination process have rarely had much impact. Um, they've almost always been an afterthought after Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, and then South Carolina, which comes after Nevada in the in the Republican timetable. Um, you know, her her whole effort has to be South Carolina. Um, she has said that she wants to continue to build as she you know started out in Iowa with 19% of the vote and then got 43% in New Hampshire and that she wants to continue to build on that in South Carolina based on the poll that uh, that we had last week with Monmouth University uh she has a long way to go uh in order to uh, to get to that to get to that goal um now She does have some time. Um, She's going to work hard on that. She's out raising money. She had a good January in terms of money. She raised $16 million. Um, But um, the problem that she has, and we've talked about this repeatedly um, since Iowa, is that she has difficulty in a competition with Donald Trump winning Republican voters. She did well in New Hampshire because she had strong support among uh, so-called undeclared or independent voters. Um, Anybody in South Carolina can vote in the Republican primary because they don't register by party. Uh, But many Democrats and some independents may have voted in the Democratic primary last weekend. Um, But she has to be able to win Republican votes, and that has to be her focus. And she has to find an argument against former President Trump that resonates with those Republican voters as opposed to the the independent voters who probably are already hostile to Donald Trump. So that's that's her. That's her goal. That's her mission, uh, and that really is where her whole campaign stands at this point.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Dan. Uh, mm-hmm. In my past life as a campaign reporter, when I thought of <laughs> this point in the calendar in Nevada, I would say to myself, "Okay, we're just getting going now. You know, there's a little bit of uh, thinning out in the field, but we're kind of, you know, in the nitty gritty and, and looking on to Super Tuesday, and we've got typically competitive races." We don't have that this time for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, it, it, this is in the eyes of many Republicans, Trump's you know, race to, to lose at this point. He's in complete control. I wonder if you could sort of walk us through how we got to this point where a race that is an open race that doesn't have an incumbent is effectively, in the eyes of many Republicans at least, wrapped up so soon in
0: this primary process. Well, it's a good question, and I think there are two reasons for it. One is, though he is not an incumbent, he is a quasi-incumbent. He is the dominant person within the Republican Party and has been since he was elected in 2016, and despite losing in 2020 and, and contributing to uh, what was a disappointing outcome in 2022 for the Republican Party. He is the dominant person within the Republican Party, and so he he does run as a quasi-incumbent. And then I think the second thing, which we've already mentioned, is uh, the four indictments uh, that were leveled against him over the last year uh, or, or this year um, tended to rally people around him who might have had some qualms about him, because it looked to them as though this was an attack by the Justice Department. So many Republicans, even if they're not enthusiastic about Donald Trump, do see this as a a, a series of political attacks rather than legitimate legal cases. Um, We'll let the judicial system sort out that question, but nonetheless, as a political matter, uh, it benefited him. And it, it, it made it very, very difficult for any of his challengers to really get any traction um, and the third aspect of this is that those who had the wherewithal uh, and the aspiration to become his chief opponent, and mostly that's been Nikki Haley um, and uh, former uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, uh, they spent much more time and money attacking one another rather than attacking Donald Trump. So he he stayed away from the debates. He was largely, you know, free of attacks. Uh, his opponents. Uh, attacked one another and therefore drove them down, and it's left him in this very, very strong position, and and one in which, uh, you know, it would take something unexpected at this point for him to lose the nomination. And and you're right, Sean. I mean, at this point, we are normally just getting started, uh, and we do look always to Super Tuesday as a as a major event, as it was in 2020 for the uh, for uh, President Biden and the Democrats. Um, But the Republican rules also are such that uh, as we get deeper into the primary season, uh, many of these primaries are winner-take-all, unlike the Democrats who do proportional allocation of delegates. And so all of that plays to President Trump's advantage.
1: Yeah, unexpected seems like the right word there. It would have to be pretty extraordinarily unexpected (laughs) uh, to, to stop him at this point. Dan Balls, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger uh, to this program. We'd love to have you <laughs> back again soon, but we're out of time right now, so happy, we'll have to leave it there.
0: Happy to do it. Thank you, Sean.
1: Thanks again, Dan. Okay, I want to continue the program now with two more of our reporters who are covering the 2024 presidential campaign, Yasmeen Taleb, who covers the White House here at The Washington Post, and Hannah Knowles, who covers the campaign uh, for us at The Washington Post. Uh, welcome, Yasmin and Hannah, to the program. Hey, thank you. All right, Asmin, I want to start with you. You had this really great piece that I I want to draw viewers' attention to, uh, which was set in in Michigan recently. And you've covered the White House and President Biden pretty closely. um, And uh, it seems like what you found in his reporting, in your reporting, I should say, is a potential political vulnerability in a pretty key swing state. What did you find uh, when you were out there?
2: So I went to Dearborn, Michigan, which is known as the Arab American population of America. Um, It's majority Arab American. um, It has the densest population of Arab Americans and Muslims anywhere in the U.S. And I talked to people about uh, President Biden's handling of the Israel-Gaza war to see how much it was influencing their votes. Um, I had heard that there was this sort of uh, still early movement called Abandoned Biden. To try to get Muslims and Arabs to not vote for Biden in the general election. Uh, To be clear, they are not supporting former President Trump. Um, A lot of people have made the point that President Trump has said he would expand uh, his ban on several Muslim-majority countries. But they are also extremely dissatisfied with President Biden's handling of the war, uh, his unwavering support of Israel, what they describe as Know, insufficient empathy in his rhetoric for Palestinians and what's happening in Gaza, um, and that he has not called for a ceasefire. And so I talked to more than two dozen voters while I was there, organizers of this campaign. Um, and they if President Biden wants to win some of these voters back, he has an enormous amount of work to do, because what I found was that they were resolved not to vote for him. They were fully aware of the risks that came. With not voting for Biden and potentially allowing Trump to win, uh, but say that you know when their relatives are being slaughtered, their loved ones, the war is expanding to other countries. That's more directly impacting a, a greater portion of the Arab American and Muslim community. Uh, that they just could not see themselves supporting Biden in November. Yeah,
1: it was a really great story. And then uh, President Biden himself was then in Michigan right after that. What is his message when he goes to this state? What is he trying to underscore? What is he talking about? Is he talking about uh, the conflict in the Middle East? Is he sidestepping it? How does he kind of come at this when he goes to what seems like it's going to be a pretty important state for him in November?
2: Yeah, I, I should have mentioned that President Biden has very few, if any, paths to victory if he doesn't win Michigan. This is key to his victory map, especially because, like you said, Sean, this is going to be such a tightly contested election. With really no room for error. The Arab American and Muslim population in Michigan is about 300,000 people. About 200,000 of them are registered voters. Um, and President Biden won Michigan by 154,000 votes in 2020. Just to give you a sense of how much tighter it can be this year, I think Trump won by just about 10,000 votes in 2016. So, I mean, this is a state where really both candidates have to seize on every possible vote that they can. Um, in Dearborn alone, Biden secured 30,000 votes in 2020, just to give you a sense of the scale of the problem that we're talking about. So, when he went to Michigan last week, he was going to do um, an event with the United Auto Workers, count his union credentials. He pretty studiously avoided talking about the Israel Gaza war. And actually, the White House took some kind of unusually secretive steps. Um, when it came to this trip, we had no idea where he was going. We just knew it was in the greater Detroit area, which could mean one of a million things. We had no idea what his exact location was. I mean, they, they went to pretty extraordinary lengths to try to avoid protests. But of course, uh, people on the ground started to figure out where he would be, and there were still protests. But he has not interacted with this community in any way. Um, a, a number of his top advisors are going to Michigan this week to meet with Arab American elected officials, um, which I think just shows you that they are starting to take this problem much more seriously.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. When they're dispatching advisors to the state, like, they know they they have a problem and they need to, to deal with it. Uh, Hannah, I wanted to turn to you to talk about the Republican race. Ron DeSantis's campaign is over. I don't need to remind you of that. You spent uh, a, a, about a year, maybe more, covering it. But the news keeps uh, coming out about DeSantis. And recently we got uh, a new batch of campaign finance reports that just showed the sheer scale of how much money uh, was poured into a campaign effort, uh, both through his campaign and a super PAC uh, that that uh, did not go very far, did not even make it beyond the first nominated contest. You did some reporting on that. Can you talk a little bit about what you found as you sort of poured through those documents?
3: Yeah, well, and I think to me, um, kind of what was most interesting in those reports was how broke they were at the end, because we sort of knew, you know, yes, he's spending gobs and gobs of money through this super PAC that Um, Legally, it can't coordinate with the campaign, but it found all these ways to effectively, um, you know, work with the campaign and cover a lot of their costs. But so um, overall, uh, the super PAC spent $130 million just in 2023. Um, That doesn't count, you know, the first couple weeks of January, where he was still in the race as well and and still spending heavily. Um, And then Uh, Even though I think his super PAC officials in August had said, you know, we need 50 million more dollars. I mean, they were trying to raise 100 million more by March. And when you look at these reports, um, the fundraising just dropped off really, really steeply as he started to struggle in the second half of the year. And um, they only brought in like less than $15 million in the end in that second half of 2023.
1: A pretty stark uh, financial picture. The other thing, uh, Hannah, that stood out uh, in the reporting from you and, and your colleagues that I was reading was about Donald Trump, the former president, and the sheer amount of money from uh, some of his allied political vehicles that has been spent on his legal fees, something like $55 million. Uh, politically speaking, how have these uh, legal you know, problems, when they are problems from a legal perspective, played politically in this primary which is still ongoing a good reminder we're not technically in the general election left you know he still has one primary opponent but how has how has the legal cloud that he's under affected this race
3: Yeah I mean as Dan mentioned earlier right it's kind of been all upside for him in the primary and you do see I mean the the first indictment of Trump back in march of 2023 that's where ron DeSantis really starts to drop in the polls and and trump starts to rise and it just never goes back down um and so i think you know people absolutely see that as the trigger for trump's um you know resurgence in the race and uh i don't know i mean i think going forward as as dan noted too for the general election um haley is still trying to point out uh how much this this all this legal stuff could end up hurting him could end up hurting the party and so it becomes more of a double edged sword going
1: forward interesting okay now we can get back to the uh, potential general election uh matchup yes i mean the economy uh, i think we found through a recent metric grew in 2023 by something like 3.1% we hear the term bidenomics being thrown around by biden and his allies but we also see a lot of polling that seems to show that people aren't really feeling these economic gains or rebounds. So does the Biden campaign have a plan in place to run aggressively on the economy? Are they trying to make this a focal point of, of his reelection campaign as we head toward November?
2: I think there are a lot of Democrats who wish they would not use mm-hmm. the term Bidenomics anymore. Um, yeah, I, I, the president and his advisors are obviously very excited um, that the economic numbers seem to be trending in the right direction, but they've had this sort of persistent problem where the economy looks good on paper. There's really strong job growth, low unemployment. Uh, there have been people who have remarked that no president has ever lost with economic numbers like this, but people aren't really feeling it because, you know, of inflation. Um, and it's an it's a key pocketbook item. So inflation has come down in the last couple of months, but. Our colleagues have done some great reporting on how the price of groceries remains persistently high, and that's really impacting low and middle income voters. Um, and so they, they, uh, they do wanna talk about the economy. They wanna tout its strength. Uh, they're very fond of sort of shoving it back in their critic's faces that everyone thought there would be a recession that didn't materialize, but they do need to find a way to uh, tout the strong economy numbers, but also reckon with the fact that people are still unhappy with their pocketbook finances.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting point about uh, inflation. And even as it eases, like you're still seeing prices go up in a lot of ways, just not at, at a steep pace as, as they were perhaps uh, a couple of years ago. Is there a sense, Yasmin, I mean, in the Democratic Party that Biden and the White House can or should be doing more to promote the economy in a better way? Is this simply a matter of people not feeling it? Or is this a problem of message, messenger, and strategy when they talk about the economy?
2: It's a great question, Sean. I mean, I do think part of the problem is the messenger, Biden himself. There are these really persistent concerns about his age, uh, that he's just not a very effective messenger for himself or for some of his administration's accomplishments, uh, because a lot of times the focal point will be his age, how he looks. Does he look like he's totally with it and, and sort of energetic enough for the job? But I think it's um, a twofold problem. Yes, they want to explain to people why the economy is doing so well, Uh, consumer sentiment is starting to trend up. So I think you know they feel that there is sort of a long runway for people to feel uh, the positive impacts of the economy improving from now until November, and that maybe it'll improve over the next few months. Um, But also that, yeah, they, they need a sort of twofold message where they can tout the economy, they can tout what they've done to strengthen it, but also not dismiss the very real concerns that people have. And I think that's been a part of the problem the last several months in their economic messaging.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it seems like one problem is you know, the fact that he doesn't seem to be able to break through And this. The other problem, and Hannah, I wanted to get your take on this, is that when voters compare him to Donald Trump, his potential opponent, they tend in a lot of surveys to give Trump a pretty big edge. And in fact, I think there was an NBC poll that gave Trump something like a 20-point edge over Biden on the economy, which is pretty stark. So how is the Trump campaign Trying to strategize around that uh, element of this campaign—is this something that he talks about a lot? Is this something we can expect to hear the Trump campaign continue to talk about as we move toward November?
3: Um, yeah, for sure. No, they definitely have tried to, you know, pivot toward that general election with Joe Biden already, and a big portion of it is just, you know, remember when I was president? Um, wasn't the economy good um, before before COVID happened? Um, uh, you know, so so with some caveats, but I th- I think that rings true to a lot of voters. And I just, I talk to so many people, including people who just aren't really, you know, it, that engaged in politics, or maybe they're sort of in the middle, maybe they're not big fans of Trump, but that um, economic kind of nostalgia argument is really persuasive to them, and they bring it up a lot.
1: That's interesting. So, Yes, I mean, we've talked about the economy, we've talked about the war in the Middle East, uh, two big issues clearly that are uh, affecting this campaign right now. As you talk to uh, Biden White House folks and, and the campaign and Democrats that, that you're covering day to day, what are the other issues that you see them trying to underscore in this campaign? Abortion, immigration, are there other things that they're trying to raise uh, that they see as fertile ground to make political arguments that they think can resonate with people?
2: Well, Sean, I think you said the one that they see as their sort of ace in the hole, which is the abortion issue. Obviously, Biden's campaign so far, it's still early days, but has a a number of weaknesses, his handling of the war and its unpopularity among a a large swath of Democrats. His age is probably the biggest one, Um, the sort of mixed feeling on the economy. But um, I think there is a sense among the White House, the campaign and a number of Democrats that. Stressing abortion, um, you know, the way Biden talks about it, he's not super comfortable talking about abortion in a lot of detail, but he wraps it into this broader argument he has about Republicans and Trump are trying to take away your freedoms. And in, in that, he says the, the freedom to choose. Um, he doesn't like to talk about abortion as an issue like he hasn't given an entire speech on it or anything like that. But I think they see that as something that can help resolve some of their issues with low enthusiasm among young voters, among voters of color. Um, among Democrats and even some independents, because in some of these red states where abortion has come up as a ballot initiative, um, it always seems to win, preserving access to abortion. Um, and so I they see that as, as really key to their um, electoral victory path.
1: That's interesting. And as a, a lot of the country, it seems like, does look at this Biden-Trump potential matchup, rematch, whatever you want to call it, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, Hannah, Trump still has uh, a rival in Nikki Haley, and you had a really interesting story recently about a tactic she's trying to use where her campaign is effectively going to donors and saying, well, hold on, if you, if you nominate Donald Trump, there could be a big political cost for the party, uh, and we could lose control of the U.S. House. Can you talk a little bit about what her reasoning, what her campaign's reasoning is, and why they're trying to make this argument to donors?
3: Yeah, um, I think that the campaign recognizes that, um, you know, a lot of donors are, um, they still have a lot of anxiety about Trump as the nominee, um, but, uh, you know, they're sort of resigning themselves to him. And so I think they're they're focusing more on those down ballot races where, um, you know, the donors are are turning some more of their attention and their money now and saying, uh, you know, this is the best chance we have to win a bunch of Senate seats. Um, And then also saying if Trump is the nominee, you know, just the house is gone. We don't have a shot. I think that's a really hard sell, though, um, especially because, you know, there has just been so many polls showing that despite all of Trump's vulnerabilities and flaws, um, you know, it's it's pretty much a toss up with Biden. Sometimes he's ahead. And so I just think that that pitch has been really hard to make, um, even though the, the donors are worried.
1: Yeah, is there any indication I was going to ask if that that you know that among any specific donor or uh, class of donor that that is uh, resonating since her campaign kind of put that out there last week?
3: I have yet to hear a concrete example. Um, you know, she's still Haley still has plenty of money behind her, but you know privately all of her supporters will pretty much acknowledge, yeah, this is looking like you know potentially an impossible lift. Yeah. Um, If I could
2: just add one just one sort of quick final thought. I I think it's kind of interesting in this race how the Biden folks are are banking on the fact that once it's a head to head contest with Trump, enthusiasm will pick up and it might motivate more people. And Trump, you know, very eager to debate Biden, as he said this week, seems to be banking on the fact that when he's in a head to head with Biden, it'll pick up enthusiasm among some Republicans who maybe are more, uh, you know, want the party to move on from him.
3: Yeah, I will say I do talk to a lot of um, vote, Republican voters still who are holding out for Haley, and I don't think they quite understand the reality that you know Trump basically is going to be their nominee at this point, and it's sort of this out that people still have when you ask them, okay, how are you going to vote in a Trump Biden rematch? And they'll say, well, I'm well, I'm hoping it's going to be Haley, right? And so they can still kind of cling to that, and I think the big question is you know, once that matchup becomes real, where do those voters go? I'm not sure they actually know themselves.
1: I am very curious to find out. And uh, hopefully you guys will be out there in the country uh, talking to them and figuring that out, because that is a, a really interesting question. Um, okay, unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Yasmin, Hannah. Don't be strangers. Thanks for coming on the program and, and hope to have you back soon. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.